Appreciate that, Shane, reminding us of the fierce love of God. Well, good morning. It's a blessing to be in here in air conditioning when there's a heat advisory, a heat warning, whatever that means. Uh, I don't know you're advised to stay in the air conditioning, I guess. Heat advisory. Well, we're in it. So, well, the heat is on. And hopefully the heat will be on in the form of the Holy Spirit this morning as we read His Word and just avail our minds and our hearts. We want God to have His way in here this morning. So I just encourage you to prepare your mind for the preaching of His Word and um, as we worship Christ as King in the book of Matthew. We've completed chapter 1 in the book of Matthew and now we venture into chapter 2. And I think that you'll find that the message is basically the same. The message of... Matthew, the main message that he is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to to proclaim is that Jesus is king. And he went to great lengths in chapter one to explain that to us or to show that to us. And he showed it to us through the line of Mary by following that Jesus's line back to David through the line of Joseph by following that back to David, who, of course, was promised by God. That there would come a day where somebody in his line would reign forever on the throne. That somebody was Christ. He also followed it back to to God. Jesus is the son of God. So there's a divine line there. Jesus is king from any perspective. You look at it genealogically. Well, in a different way, he's going to proclaim that same message and confirm that same message in this passage this morning. As we look at the wise men. We're going to look at the wise men this morning. Who are these wise men? And what are they doing bowing down to this young, obscure child in this nowhere town of Bethlehem? And what can we learn from the actions of these wise men? Well, that's what we're going to consider this morning. And I know the bulletin just says the first two verses, and that's really what we'll focus in on. But I'm going to go ahead and read the first 12 verses of Matthew 2, because we'll be in this passage for a few weeks. And it helps give the whole picture, the whole story. Of course, this is the Christmas story, part of it anyway. But let's read the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. 
And after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. What a beautiful set of words. We have come to worship him. We've traveled to worship him. Are you here this morning to worship him? To worship Christ the King? I know that's why many of us are here. We roused ourselves out of the bed probably after a busy week. Jumped into our vehicles. And we came here and come here to worship Christ the King. I want us to look at just in this passage, and there's many things that we could look at, and we'll look at more in the near future. But I want to zero in on just two sovereign acts of God that have that are taking place in this scene. The two sovereign acts of God that I want us to consider are how God worked or used um, the wise men and then how God sovereignly worked and used the star wielding his sovereign power to use these two things to bring about this event that we are perhaps very familiar with in Scripture because it's part of the Christmas story. And one thing our culture usually is very familiar with is Christmas because Christmas is a big deal in our culture. With or without Jesus, we catch the, um, the Christian message, I think, in it many times, whether it's for the right reason or the wrong reason. But Matthew's taken great strides to show us that Jesus is the rightful king. He's the king of the earth. He's the rightful king of the heavens. And now we see this scene here. We read about this scene. If you just think about it, we're familiar with it, but it doesn't make a lot of sense from an earthly perspective. Because here you have this, at this point, a nobody child uh, that is... Very likely poor, born in obscurity and perhaps even under a cloud of scandal. And he's in this nowhere town, an obscure town of Bethlehem that not many people in the world would at that time would be that aware of. And so you have this very common scene. And yet then you have these very wealthy, very prominent and classy set of people here. Very, very renowned or well-known. And they are in this obscure place. And they are in a position of worship, bowing before this nobody child. And you think, how, how did these people from the east that mean so much there, how did they wind up here in this little town of Bethlehem? It doesn't make a lot of sense. But it's actually incredible as we explore this idea how God's sovereign hand brought this unlikely scene about. That's all right, Tom. He apologized. He said, I'm sorry, Pastor. So that's all. And by the way, these 
these wise men, what makes it even more unlikely is that they're Gentiles. So God brings this classy set of Gentiles, wise men, to worship this king. How did this happen? Well, the sovereign hand of God. And then we'll look at the sovereign hand of God and how he used this star as well. And, and it's basically, in essence, it's God's message. It's God wanting to proclaim to the world how much he wants the world to know that the king of kings has arrived. It's, it's a proclamation, the star and the wise men. This little scene that we're used to hearing about during Christmas, a proclamation that the king of kings has arrived on earth and he is setting up his kingdom of righteousness. He will bring all things back into order and he will reign eternally. But I'll tell you up front that most of the message will focus on the first part. It'll be heavy in the front end, I guess you'd say, about the wise men. Because we have to dig and do a little historical uh, thinking in order to build up to this point. In order for us to see how significant it is that these wise men are bowing before the Lord. And I can tell you that as I've done this research, I will not consider... This little scene that I was so familiar with, the same again for, for this coming Christmas and the ones to follow. So what do we even know about these wise men? What do we even know about them? Well, we know that there were three of them and that they dressed very nicely. Uh, they came from the Orient. They came from the East. Uh, one of them was, was probably, they, they represented three different kind of nationalities. Uh, one of them was probably dark-skinned, one of them was Arab, one of them was Asian. And they traveled in caravans, and they rode on camels. And at some point in their travels, the little drummer boy uh, met up with them and joined them. And he came with them to the stable, the manger, wherever Christ was at this time. And he also worshipped Jesus with them. Through his drum. So that's what we know about the wise men based on the Christmas cards and based on the Christmas specials that we often watch on TV. But what do we really know? Where does that come from? What do we really know about the wise men? Well, Vincent's word studies. Vincent says, many absurd traditions and guesses respecting these visitors to our Lord's cradle have found their way into popular belief and into Christian art. They were said to be kings and three in number. They were said to be representatives of three families, Shem, Ham and Japheth. And therefore, one of them is pictured as Ethiopian. Their names are given as Casper, Belthazar and Melchior. And their three skulls, amazingly enough are said to have been found. Yes, they were found in the 12th century by Bishop Renald of Cologne. Don't know exactly how it happened, but he was digging or somebody, maybe a servant was digging and they come upon a skull and then another skull and another skull and there's three of them and somehow the bishop was able to look at them and say, well, these are the skulls of the wise men. Must have been the look in their eye. Or something. We don't really know. And matter of fact, if you're still curious about it, you can go and visit those wise men's skulls uh, in Europe at the shrine of the three kings. Of course, that was a time in 
Christendom when artifacts were a huge thing. Anything you could get your hands on, even if you had to make it up, um, was a huge thing, huge thing and was incorporated as a part of worship. But what do we really know? Well, if you take all of the information that the New Testament offers us about the wise men, <clears throat> here's everything we know. There came wise men from the east. That's everything we know uh, in the New Testament because only Matthew comments on it. But there are some things that we can learn about. There are some passages in the Old Testament that are really going to help us put this puzzle together. And then there's a lot of history that have been written about the wise men. So we're going to look at that. But we, from a biblical perspective, based on this story, we don't know how many there were. Uh, we don't know... Um, you know, their, their color necessarily. We don't know how smart they were, what, them, what made them wise. Why, did, why were they even called wise men? We have no idea what in the world Gentiles are doing bowing before this baby. The Old Testament is going to help us and some historians are also going to help us connect the dots. In particularly the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. So who are the wise men? Well, really, the name for wise men is, is magi and the Greek, I think, would be Magi, and I guess we soften the G for some reason, Magi, but it's the Magi. That's the proper name for these people. And it turns out that they are an, from the East. They are an Eastern priestly type of people. Uh, they come from the Medes, and you're familiar in Scripture with the Medes and the Persians who took over Babylon. So there are some biblical names in here. Uh, they come from the Medes. So basically, they're a tribe from among the Mede people uh, from the Medo-Persian Empire. They're a very large and powerful people. And, of course, you'll know from the Bible that Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon, and they conquered Jerusalem, and God exiled them to Babylon. And then the Medes and the Persians conquered the Babylonians to take over the empire at that time. So Nebuchadnezzar is a familiar name. Cyrus the Great is a familiar name. Matthew tells, tells us wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now these, the word for wise men again is, is magi. A line of priestly people. The magi were known for being wise. Um, they were also known for dabbling in astronomy and astrology. Astronomy being the kind of a more scientific approach to the study of the stars and the planets and, and their patterns, the paths and the times and so forth. Astrology is the more superstitious pursuit of the stars, not just following the paths, but then trying to connect what that means for us here on Earth. So I just saw a shooting star. What does that mean for me in my life? And it's a little bit like fortune telling and, and so forth. Now, they didn't make the distinction and then they just it was all one thing to them. That's what they studied when they looked at the stars. So they became interested in these. And in essence, they would use any resource they could to accumulate wisdom and to become a resourceful in that area. They were also religious. So again, it's a priestly line. They were a religious type of people. So they also sought, uh, in their case, God, because they were 
predominantly monotheistic. So they sought their God. They tried to get wisdom from him. They tried to get wisdom by reading the signs and the stars. They were kind of tried to be up on the times and to put all of the things of life together so that they could be very valuable resource in knowing things. They also became they also were somewhat occultic and that is they got into some of the uh, sorcery type uh, items as well. Anything that they could use to their advantage to try to gain wisdom and knowledge. And and some of them concentrated more on the stars. Some were more religious. Some were more uh, on the sorcery side. So there, there were some of them that kind of got a bad name. Of course, we get our word magician from Magi. Because of the sorcery aspects and even the book of Acts, Simon, the magician, uh, was believed to have been a magi that focused in on the, um, the sorcery part of it. <clears throat> so their religion, incidentally, it, is similar to Judaism. They're a priestly line of people just like so a single tribe out of the Medes were priestly, just like the Levites. God chose a single line. Out of the twelve tribes to serve him as priests. They also made sacrifices to their God. They made uh, blood sacrifices and offerings. They were bigger into the significance of the fire and the flames uh, than the Jews were. They also uh, would not touch dead bodies. They had that as a part of their religion. That that would make you unclean. It's interesting that you look at some of these religions. Of course, even today we have... We have false religions, but there are always these similarities within the true religion. And sometimes there are very close similarities within the true religion because that's how Satan likes to work. He's the great counterfeiter. He wants it to look real. He wants you to think you're really doing the right thing by following after these things that are similar. But it's not quite right. It's not true. It's false. Revelation is all about counterfeit God's and worship. You will recall that as far as how does this come into play with the Christmas story? Well, you will recall that the Jews were overcome by the Babylonians and taken into exile, which became the Medo-Persian Empire. Um, You also recall that the Jews were heavenly influenced by that culture. And Jeremiah the prophet said, when you go into exile, it's going to be 70 years. When you get there, don't live on the edge of your seat mourning for the homeland. Plant yourself. Build houses, get married, have kids, plant gardens. In other words, make yourself at home there. And that's what they did. Recently studying Nehemiah, Ezra and Nehemiah, we know that when it came time for the Jews to return to the motherland, that... Many, many more stayed than returned. So they, they were kind of influenced by the Persian culture. But it also worked the other way. And that's how it works with us as well. We kind of rub off on each other if we spend a lot of time together. And so they also, in a sense, we're going to see at least in a small way, they kind of their ways rubbed off on the Persians as well. We know this from the book of Daniel. When you think about Daniel, Daniel rose in the ranks to a high position in the court of the king, of course, by God's providential hand. And Daniel himself became a very high-ranking official. 
John MacArthur says, speaking of the um, Magi, they had ascended to a high place in the Babylonian Empire because of their amazing intuition, wisdom, knowledge, astrology, and occultic ability. They had risen to a place of prominence, and so immediately they came into contact with all the Jewish people that had been brought into captivity. They also came into contact with one very specific Jew by the name of Daniel, who was elevated in the Babylonian Empire. Many scholars believe that these wise men rub shoulders with the, those that were recognized as being very wise among the Jews. Daniel being the, the main most one, as some might say. Uh, he was the head of the wise men. He was literally picked and noticed for his mental acumen and for his spiritual sensitivities. And so they rubbed shoulders and they would share ideas about laws and policies and kings and prophecies and God and how does he speak and who does he speak to and who is the true God. All these things had to be considered at the table among wise men. That's how they operated and functioned. That's what they got paid for. That's why they were there. And so it's very likely that during this time that Daniel sharing his life, sharing the God that he worships, would share it with the Magi and they would consider the writings of Scripture and prophecy. And perhaps also with Daniel, think about the one who was promised to come because that's where the Jews hung their hope on the, the shoulders of the Messiah. God's going to send us somebody. And I know that life has been rough. It gets good. It gets bad. It gets good. It gets bad. And if you look at our whole history, that's how it's been. But God has promised us, the God of heavens, that he is going to send somebody. He's going to make it all right. It's going to be a king. And he's going to come right here to earth. And he's even given us little signs to look for and where to look for him. And he shares this with the Magi. Well, throughout the ages, um, the Magi just continued to be a great people known for their wisdom and their knowledge. And they were sought after, became, I guess, more valuable. They were sought after for their wisdom by kings, by rulers of all kinds in the East. They wanted this knowledge that they had, and that's how they got their name, Wise Men. They were the ones that would consult or be consulted about giving advice to the king. What does this mean? What does this victory in battle mean? Or what does this defeat in battle mean? What are the gods? What are the heavens? What's the earth? What, are, what is the message here? They were the ones that were hopefully able to interpret these different things. In fact, Jeremiah 20, uh, 39.3, when Israel was defeated by the Babylonians where there was a board of consultation, they were trying to figure out what does this look like for us to, to bring them back into Babylon. He says that there was a Nurgle Sherazizer who was a chief of the Magi in the court at that time. It was helping them broker this deal of submission. So they were unmatched in political power. Now, as you know, Daniel became an advisor to the king. Of Babylon when the Jews were taken captive. And this is found in the book of Daniel, chapter 2. And you can turn there if you want or you don't have to. I'm just going to mention a few verses in the book of Daniel. But if you've read your Bibles, you'll be familiar 
with this story. The scene is in the court of Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar had this troubling dream. He's a king. Well, he, he's, he's the king. This is his empire rules the known world at that time. And he has this dream. It's very troubling to him. He wants to understand what it means to him and his kingdom. Verse 10 in chapter 2, it says, The Chaldeans answered the king when he was asking them, I want to know what this dream means. And you are the wise men, so tell me what it means. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. Basically, uh, three things that mean the same thing. Magi, we, we've, the Magi have never been asked to produce such a bit of knowledge by any ruler, by any king. They are speaking. This is the priestly tribe of the Magi. And they were also known to be able to interpret dreams. So the king had them there and called them there to interpret this dream. The problem was that they couldn't do it. Not a single one could come up with anything that sounded intelligent or right or true. And they know it. At least they had the integrity to not make something up. Of course, it would cost them their lives. But to not interpret it is going to cost them their lives because the king is demanding an interpretation. He's about to kill the wise men because they cannot help him with this troubled spirit that he has. He's absolutely furious. Well, then, chapter 5, verse 11, Daniel comes into the picture. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father... Light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Who was made chief of the wise men of the east? But Daniel the Jew, by the king of Babylon. So, so you have this priestly group of wise men and ruling over them at this time, I guess because he has been recognized as being even wiser, is Daniel. He meets with them. He consults with them. Of course, about the gods, about the kings and what it means and who rises and who falls, laws, policies, the skies, the times, all these signs. That was their job. And so they consulted. And so by the sovereign hand of God, Daniel has this unique opportunity to uh, consult with the intellectuals, I guess, if you will, and also the, the theologians of that era and that day. And to share with them Holy Scripture. To share with them where his knowledge comes from. Where his wisdom comes from. How can you be so effective and so accurate about knowing these things? We are a priestly tribe for generations. And we don't understand what all of this means. 
And so he's in a strategic position to share with them. And, and surely he shared with them the prophecies and the signs of God. And that which the Israelites hung their hopes upon. The one and only true God. And I think that it's not a stretch to assume that because think about the character of Daniel. He's the guy that absolutely, though he is in another land, he refuses to bow down to any other God. He refuses to worship an idol, whether it's an earthly king or a false god. He's just not going to do it to the extent of being thrown into the, to the den of lions. This guy has a courageous faith. And surely, unabashedly and unashamedly, he shared his faith, his story, his testimony of his people with his fellow wise men. So it's very possible that as they gleaned from him, and perhaps some of them respected this. I mean, wise people respect wise people in your trade. You respect people in your trade that are good at what they do. And so perhaps some of them could see the truth in the scriptures and also were very curious and anticipated what the God of Daniel might do in bringing this king, in bringing this promised Messiah into the earth. How will it be fulfilled, this prophecy? So all through the years, things are just building here. All through the years until the time of Christ, the Magi remained a very, very Powerful people, very political, very sought after, very, very powerful in the East. They, they would be very widely, widely known and respected, reputed. They became so fact, so powerful, in fact, that the historians tell us that there came a point, at least in, in Persia, that you could not even become a king without their approval. That's how powerful they were. There were two, two criteria that you had to meet. One condition is that they had to master the scientific. If you wanted to be a king in that area, you had to master the scientific and religious disciplines of the Magi. So their code, their wisdom, you had to understand that and abide by it. And they had to be approved of and crowned by the Magi. So, in other words, the Magi were makers of kings. So, by God's sovereign hand, 600 years in advance, He's setting the stage for this little scene that we read about every Christmas. It's this mysterious visitation from the wise men. He's setting the stage for his son to be hailed as king by Gentiles, no less, through Daniel, his servant. Very likely, God-fearing Gentiles in some way. God-fearing Gentiles, that they were moved to follow the star. They were moved. They wanted to come and recognize this great thing. That this God that I'm assuming Daniel had introduced them to. And all the prophecies, they were moved to go and worship and present gifts. There's something has to be behind that. And I believe through history and through Daniel's acquisition of power and clout. 
God is setting the stage just to tell the world. That's how that's how he desires the world to worship his son as the king. And so I think that this particular group of Magi anticipated this. They were looking out for it. They were looking for the signs and they began to see them. And they sought it out. And so here they come from the east and all their grandeur, all their power, all their wealth, all their classiness. And they come to Jerusalem. These kingmakers that anybody would know anything about anything would know that that's what the Magi were all about. And they come into this town. And they ask the question. Where is he? Who has been born king of the Jews. For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Anybody that knew anything would realize how significant that was. So by God's marvelous sovereign hand. Here they are. 600 years in the making to bring them to this place of confirmation, this place of heralding Christ as King. And for me personally, it's not so much the historical facts, although those those are uh, intriguing. For me, it, it grips me because it just shows the power, the sovereign power of God. To bring things about. The workings of the sovereign hand of God. Way in advance. Hundreds of years in advance. Bringing this little event to pass. And this little event to pass. And this little event to pass. So that this event comes to pass. Fulfilling all of the promises. And all of the prophecy. That he has offered. To mankind. Long ago, he picked out this man, Daniel, to serve in this way, to have this place of influence. I mean, who would ever say that there would come a day where a Jew in little Jerusalem that is now no longer powerful under the hand or king of King David, that this guy, Daniel, who was just this pure do-gooder Jewish guy, would rise into the courts of the greatest empire known to man at the time and have such influence God put him in that place. So why is Matthew, and Matthew's the only one that does this. Why does Matthew give us this story? Why does he present this? Well, because his message is world, Christ is the king. And he is the king that God promised long ago. And he has come to rule. John MacArthur says Matthew all the way through his gospel is trying to tell the world that Christ is the king. And just to make sure nobody misses it, he has the most famous kingmakers in the world come bow down at his feet. It's all part of Matthew's strategy. He's the king. And if Israel isn't going to acknowledge it, then God's going to drag some people from the east, from Persia, Gentiles. To acknowledge it. He's the king. God's master plan. In history. God wields the power. 
of kings, wise men, magi. doesn't matter. God is a sovereign God of history. And we see that in this passage. The other thing we see, I think that as a universal sovereign act of God, is the star. We saw his star, they said. That was the sign to them. It rose, and we've come to worship him. And then verse 9, the star they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. So what place does the star have in the story of Christ the King? Well, that's another thing that's kind of mysterious, and there's been a lot of conjecture about what it means and what kind of star was it. And some people say it was lots of stars that happened to come together at the time. Uh, some people say it was actually not a star. It was some kind of celestial being like a, an angel, some kind of heavenly creature that lit up the sky and helped them. Uh, some people believe that the star kind of stood over the wise men and, and almost beckoned them all the way, to the, what, the five or 600-mile trek from Persia to <clears throat> to Jerusalem. Scripture isn't quite that clear on it. There's just a lot of mystery concerning it. All it says is that, yep, they saw it when it popped up. And then they went to Jerusalem, and then they saw it again when it was over the house that or the dwelling that Jesus would be. Uh, one more modern view of this comes from Henry Morris from the Institute of Creation Research. Uh, he thinks it may have been, if you're going to put a scientific explanation to it, may have been a supernova. He says novas and supernovas are sudden, rare, entirely unpredictable explosions of existing stars that had been originally created on day four of creation week. Somehow what seems to be an ordinary star suddenly increases tremendously in brilliance, continuing so for several months until it finally fades away. So, in his opinion, scientifically, that's probably the best uh, explanation possible. But scriptures just don't tell us. We just don't know for sure how the star worked, exactly how it worked. It doesn't say that he, you know, beckoned them and led them in any particular way. But what we, what we do know for sure is that it played a part in bringing the Magi. It was God's sign or signal to them, and it played a part in bringing them to create this incredible moment where Gentile kings, as they're called, would come and bow before Christ. I like uh, what John Piper has to say about all of these theories and speculations of things that just really aren't clear in Scripture. We're curious by nature. God created us that way. We want to know things. And I think that's a good aspect, but we don't want it to get out of hand. He gives us this little warning. He says, people who are exercised and preoccupied with such things as how the star worked, how the Red Sea split, how the manna fell, how Jonah survived the fish, which... Uh, Corky's going to teach us in Sunday school, I think, after the book of Ephesians and within the next few years. I think John suggested this morning. Um, so we're going to learn how the Jonah survived in the fish. Right, Corky? Uh, how the moon turns to blood are generally people who have what I call a mentality for the marginal. 
You do not see them in a deep cherishing of the great central things of the gospel. The holiness of God, the ugliness of sin, the helplessness of man, the death of Christ, justification by faith alone, sanctifying work the Spirit, glory of Christ's return, final judgment. Always seem to be taking you down a sidetrack with a new article, a new tape, a new book. There's little rejoicing in these central beliefs. And that's true. And I see that alive and well today. How people can get sidetracked on these things and become obsessed with them and lose the main thing. But what is plain concerning this matter of the star is that it's doing something that it cannot do on its own. It's serving a purpose that it could not do on its own because of the sovereign hand of God. There's only one person in biblical thinking that can be be behind the intentionality of this star. And that is God himself. So as we we close this, we see two sovereign acts of God in Matthew where he just wields his universal power to guide foreigners to come and worship Jesus. He influences history. He influences people's hearts that his son might be worshipped because that's what brings God the Father Great joy is that creatures that he brought into existence would bow and would worship before him because God has made him the rightful king over all. To see every tribe, to see every people, no matter where you're from, no matter where you're going, to worship. So he is drawing people to worship Christ. John 6, 44, no one can come to me, Jesus says, unless the father who sent me draws him. You know, Luke showed the influencing power of God in bringing forth the prophecy that the king would be born in Bethlehem by sovereignly overseeing the Roman census so that pregnant Mary would B just happened to be in Bethlehem at the time of her pregnancy so that the king was born in Bethlehem. And now Matthew shows us the sovereign hand of God influencing the Magi in the days of Daniel, influencing the stars in the skies of Christ to get them to Bethlehem so that they can worship him. That's what God does. He draws people. He does things. He draws people in to worship Christ the King that he sent to the earth. That's what he's doing today. He is drawing us. He desires that all of us, our friends, our co-workers, that we worship Christ the King. How is God drawing us this morning as we close? How, what's he speaking to our hearts? What's he doing in here? He He wields and influences universal power. What's he doing in our hearts this morning? How is he drawing us to Christ to make his son known? Is it through perhaps the conviction of sin? You never know what you're going to hear through the preaching of God's word. And it may not have a whole lot to do with all of this. The Holy Spirit speaks. Is he wanting to draw you through or make the sun known in your heart through the conviction of sin? Perhaps it's through this this longing for purpose and meaning that you have. Perhaps it's through you 
having tried to live your life this way so many times and it just fails and fails and it brings you to a dead end and it brings you to misery and the Lord is drawing you in through this longing for meaning and, and truth. Or maybe He is drawing you in because you have this longing just to be loved. A love that's steadfast. A love that is not going to leave me abandoned like so many perhaps in the world have. Perhaps He's drawing us through this desire to just to know truth. All of these longings. Perhaps there's a longing for God in our hearts this morning that has never been there before. How is God drawing us? And are we worshiping and bowing the king? Last week we looked at Psalm 95. We saw some aspects to worship and part of it is submission. Here are these great figures submitting themselves to the kingship of Christ? Are we submitting ourselves to the kingship of Christ? Are we offering him what we have to give through gifts? And do we have great joy? They went and followed the star, the, the star exceedingly with joy. It's like joy on top of joy. They couldn't believe what they had found. They were so happy. To have seen it fulfilled. Are we so happy to be in the presence of Christ? Are we so joyful to worship Christ the King? Jesus is the King. The question is, is He your King? I pray that God's power would be known in this place as such. That God would continue to wield His universal sovereign power and and stir up our hearts. to, To be true worshipers. The Christ, the King that he sent to be worshipped as such. Wield your universal power, O God, in our midst that your son would be worshipped. In the name of Christ. And may God bless the preaching of his word.